The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash WUW860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening, everyone. My name is Jennifer Wargo, and it's my great honor to be here uh, today with you on uh, linking immunotherapy to better outcomes in resectable melanoma, guidance on integrating immune-based adjuvant and neoadjuvant options. So welcome to everyone in the room, and welcome to everyone who's dialing in from outside. And so just to really kick it off, I, I wanted to show here a timeline of immunotherapy advances in resectable melanoma. We know that the first FDA-approved agents for in the study of uh, patients with stage 4 melanoma were approved in 2011. However, in uh, pre-2015, adjuvant therapy was interferon-based, and I think many of us can remember that and uh, the trials and tribulations of that. But, but since then, we had the approval of adjuvant ipilimumab in 2015, nivolumab in 2017, and then Pembrolizumab in 2019. And now adjuvant PD-1 or pembrolizumab was just approved for stage uh, 2B and C in December of 2021. So huge advances already. And uh, we'll also discuss the potential for neoadjuvant therapy. And so uh, why are we here, though? And I think, uh, what are the unmet medical needs in resectable melanoma? And, and we know from recently published literature in, in two accounts, one from 2018 and one from 2020, that despite uh, having this information out there, most patients still receive a watch-and-wait approach, if you will, uh, who have a high-risk uh, disease that's been resected. And so I think there's still a lot of learning opportunities here for us as surgeons and for us as a global cancer community. And so uh, we will have seminar and tumor board sessions uh, included in this. And so for today's agenda, uh, we will kick it off with some evidence for adjuvant immunotherapy in patients with stage 3 and stage 2 melanoma. Uh, we'll talk about the latest on neoadjuvant immune-based treatment. And then finally, we'll also weave in some case-based discussions throughout the presentations. And so our, for our first uh, presentation, it's entitled Expanding the Role of Adjuvant Immunotherapy in Resectable Melanoma. And, and our speaker on this topic is going to be Dr. Hussein Talbi, who's the Professor of Melanoma Medical Oncology and the Deputy Chair and Director of Clinical Research and Early Drug Development at uh, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in the Department of Melanoma Medical Oncology. And I can tell you that Hussein and I work closely together. We often debate uh, this very topic, uh, very timely. And so it's my great honor to have him here tonight uh, to be able to speak with you and to share his words of wisdom. So Hussein, would love to hear from you. Thank you, Dr. Wargo, for the, uh, for the in introduction. I'm really excited to be with all of you uh, this evening discussing uh, the evidence for adjuvant immunotherapy, and we'll also take a look at uh, what the future might hold. Um, so as you know, the current era of adjuvant immunotherapy uh, uh, includes the, uh, anti, um, the immune checkpoint inhibitors and BRAF and MEK inhibitors, of course, uh, we still have approvals for the interferons. Um, however, those are much less um, uh, likely to be used. And uh, we're going to be going over the evidence that supports uh, ipilimumab, nivolumab, dabrafenib and trametinib, and now pembrolizumab in the adjuvant setting. And I have to say, if you look at these hazard ratios, you see that each of them are significant and they're each capable of decreasing the risk of recurrence in our patients with stage 3 melanoma. 
if you look at the NCCN guidelines, uh, all uh, of the anti-PD-1 and BRF and MEK inhibitors are uh, recommended and approved in the stage 3A to 3D uh, patients with melanoma. Uh, the uh, PD-1 and is preferred um, as well as uh, the BRF and MEK inhibitors. Uh, we'll be talking later today about how to potentially approach clinically node positive patients, but uh, all of those agents, the PD-1 and BRF MEK are category one, and they're also for uh, category one for uh, stage three in transit disease. And we've made an expanded version of this resource available that also features dosing information on adjuvant therapy that you can download uh, uh, for treatment planning. So to look at the exact result of these, um, uh, of these studies, Checkmate 238, I think, is one of the uh, pivotal trials that compared anti-PD-1 antibody nivolumab to the anti-CTLA-4 um, antibody ipilimumab. As you know, ipilimumab is given at 10 milligrams per kilogram um, IV every uh, three weeks for four doses, and that had been the standard of care. It had been shown in a placebo-controlled study to decrease the risk of recurrence in patients with melanoma. And nivolumab here, as you see, is actually has a hazard ratio of 0.71, a highly statistically significant hazard ratio compared to what's an active regimen that is ipilimumab. And uh, similarly, uh, and the anti-PD-1 pembrolizumab has been uh, studied in a phase three trial that in this case compared to placebo and showed a hazard ratio of 0.56. So read in that that you can decrease the risk of recurrence in those patients by 44%. Um, and so if you look at the patients with BRAF mutations, I think it's relevant because those patients have the uh, op option of getting BRAF and MEK inhibitors. It, it, there is no uh, significant advantage or disadvantage to that population. There is the same efficacy for checkmate uh, for uh, the, the anti-PD-1 uh, uh, nivolumab. And similarly, pembrolizumab and different BRF subgroups still has activity and still has a decrease in the risk of recurrence in those patients. Now, interestingly, as you know, decreasing the risk of recurrence by about you know 50% or 45 to 50% is extremely helpful. However, we still, with the long-term data, we still see that we lose about half of our patients. They still recur. So the idea of intensifying therapy is really important. And the idea of using ipilimumab in combination with, CTA, with, uh, with uh, nivolumab has been used and tried in a phase three trial, uh, Checkmate 915, that you see summarized on the left of this slide. To, to note, ipilimumab was given as one milligram per kilogram every six weeks in the study, and the hazard ratio was one uh, was 0.91, that was, and, and, and the p-value is not significant. So we don't have any evidence that this combination improves the rate of re, uh, the relapse resurvival for that population. Having said that, importantly, the Immunet trial was a study that used high-dose epinevo, the, the standard dose that we use for um, metastatic disease, compared to single-agent nivolumab compared to observation or to placebo in a population that is high-risk, that's resected stage 4, so metastatic disease that's resected. And the results are actually strongly in favor of using high-dose epilimab and nivolumab, and the hazard ratio compared to placebo was 0.23, so decreases the risk of recurrence by 76%. And also was uh, favored uh, over uh, nivolumab alone as well with a hazard ratio of 0.56. So with that in mind, that's why the uh, stage 3 disease and resected stage 4 has basically standard uh, of care is the use of immunotherapy, either as a single agent or combination, and also potentially BRF-MEK inhibitors. 
Stage 2 disease is not less risk. If you look at patients that have stage 2C, 2B and 2C disease, their risk of relapse and the risk of death at 10 years from melanoma is really high. It's in the 20 to 25% range, actually similar to patients with stage 3B and actually worse than patients with 3A that actually already have um, a standard of care adjuvant therapy. So the idea of studying this population and using anti-PD-1 antibody makes sense and Checkmate 76, uh, 76K is a study that randomized two to one patients uh, to receive nivolumab versus placebo patients with stage 2B or 2C, and this study we're still awaiting the results. However, the results of Keynote 716 have already been uh, reported, and this is a placebo-controlled one-to-one randomization of pembrolizumab versus placebo, again, for patients with stage 2B or 2C disease. And uh, the uh, results are clear in terms of relapse-free survival with the hazard ratio showing a hazard ratio 0.65. So the use of uh, pembrolizumab in this population decreases the risk of recurrence by 35% in stage 2 patients. And I think that's really important. That happens without decreasing uh, the risk uh, or without decreasing the quality of life for those patients, as you see in this uh, curve that compares the placebo to the to pembrolizumab. You know, we know that these agents are effective. We also know that they have a risk of toxicity. As you know, when you, you know, basically turn on the immune system, it starts attacking all of the normal structures. And uh, essentially every structure can be at risk of developing a, an inflammation and itis of sorts. So here's a list of all of the possible side effects. Uh, the, the reality is the grade three uh, to, to five side effects, uh, they happen only in about 14% of patients. Again, in the adjuvant studies, there was no five. It was only grade three to four. Um, and the most common are typically uh, pneumonitis, uh, colitis. Obviously, we see a lot of skin toxicity. So that does happen. However, if you look at the management, really, um, most of them are managed either by holding immunotherapy if they're grade one, uh, even if they're grade two, you can consider topical steroids or sometimes a short course of steroids. Uh, only when you're in grade three or four diseases, when you have to use high dose as corticosteroids, most of those side effects resolve within a, about a four week duration of, of steroid use. Some of them are more refractory. Some of them require admission to the hospital and IV steroids. And potentially, if they're not responsive to corticosteroids, you may have to use other inhibitors like mycophenolate for hepatitis or infliximab and vitalizumab for colitis. Um, however, again, the risk of those events happening is relatively small. So with that in mind, I hope I reviewed with you all of the evidence that supports the use of immunotherapy in patients with stage 3 disease. This is a population that has a really high risk of recurrence despite optimal surgical management. And adjuvant therapy with both targeted or immunotherapy is effective and again decreases the risk by roughly one half. Uh, I also reviewed with you that stage 2 patients can benefit from adjuvant uh, therapy and that the safety profile is generally favorable in this population. We clearly and absolutely need biomarkers and other uh, approaches to risk modeling that really can help us select who we should treat and who we shouldn't treat so that we can optimize the risk-benefit ratio. And I hope that in the next discussion, as we discuss some of the cases uh, with Dr. Orgo, we'll be able to kind of go into some of more the nuances of how we choose adjuvant therapy, and then again, how do we manage some of the toxicities. With that, thank you very much for listening, and I look, for, I look forward to the discussion. Excellent. So uh, the next part of this discussion, I will uh, 
introduce Dr. Jean-Vier Bullen again, who's going to take us to our tumor board and, and do some case discussions on adjuvant immunotherapy in resectable melanoma. Jean-Vier. Thank you. Is the mic working? Yep. Appears to be. Um, Great. Thank you for the invitation. Nice to see you, Jen. Nice to see you all in person. This is a lot of fun. Um, we hope that this is interesting uh, and, and engenders some discussion, or at least we'll start the discussion. And already your questions are, are kind of attuned to where we're going. So Michelle, a 45-year-old woman presenting to your clinic with a 2.1 millimeter non-ulcerated melanoma of the left forearm. Standard of care, wide excision, sentinel node biopsy, and one out of the two sentinel nodes has scattered melanoma cells. So T2A um, with nodal disease, very, very low burden. Uh, BRAF V600D positive. Um, so the next steps, see, these are the things we all are wondering. Any treatment? You know, no treatment, active surveillance versus adjuvant therapy. And if one were to consider adjuvant um, targeted therapy versus immunotherapy. Great. Well, well, apologies for not being there in person. I'm in D.C. at the Melanoma Research Alliance Retreat, where everybody's asking where Dr. Orgo is. So, um, <laughs> and, and again, just a, a really quick thought. I really appreciate that on this week of the International Women's Day that I'm with two superb ladies. So I, I really appreciate you guys, and thank you for being leaders in the field. Um, thinking about this particular patient, I think it's really important to highlight the fact that we have patients that are stage three because they have some evidence of lymph node involvement, but that doesn't always translate into an extremely high risk of recurrence. And we turn to our AGCC uh, eight uh, definitions, and we see that with 49,000 patients, each of them had undergone a sentinel lymph node biopsy that were kind of used to derive the uh, melanoma-specific risk of recurrence or the melanoma-specific mortality for each of those patients. We know that 3A patients have, have only a 12% risk of death of melanoma over the, over the next 10 years, so 88% survival. So when you think about that, you really have to think long and hard before you throw any sort of systemic therapy on those patients. And so um, as we look at this lady with a, you know, um, intermediate thickness, but non-ulcerated melanoma and just the faintest of evidence of involvement in the lymph node, technically that would be a patient that sits on the spectrum of low risk stage 3A. Two quick uh, thoughts on the clinical okay. trials. Uh, you should know that uh, COMBI-AD uh, included patients with stage 3A, but they were required to have more than a millimeter of involvement. Interestingly enough, and this is a debate you may have with your medical oncologist, the FDA actually did not care. They just approved it for all stage 3 patients. So technically, you need to discuss with your patient that just because a therapy is available doesn't mean that it should be the preferred option. Yeah, and who's saying awesome uh, input? Thank you. There was a question from the audience that I was hoping you can answer or opine on, and it's uh, how can adjunct tests like gene expression profiling be used to identify high-risk patients who might need higher management intensity? Yeah, that's a great question, and that's what we're all kind of after at this point. What are some biomarkers and predictors of recurrence that could you know, kind of better classify our patients? We know that actually clinical pathologic factors like depth of, of the lesion and ulceration and lymph node involvement are the most predictive, but we are hoping that some more kind of advanced technologies will help us. The, the truth of the matter is none of them that is currently available in the market are actually uh, ready for prime time or prospectively validated to really be useful. 
Um, specifically, I would say some of them are actually designed to give you the risk of whether uh, a primary should undergo a sentinel lymph node biopsy or not, and really not whether you should be, uh, you know, kind of going ahead with, with treatment or not. So we're at this point, there's some prognostic value and people are trying to validate it, but it's not validated yet. And the hope is that as we evolve these biomarkers, we also have predictive biomarkers that can tell us how well our patients are going to do with specific treatment. But the simple answer from a very long-winded answer there is I don't use any of these right now because none of them rises to the level of evidence to make me decide for my patients what would be best to do. And just to echo that, from the NCCN standpoint, there is a biomarker panel that's looked into the evidence in in very great detail, and currently there are no recommended tests either for the utilization of surgery or for additional adjuvant therapy. Um, So agreeing with you. Yeah, and but room to iterate, you know, for the scientists and translational surgeon scientists in the room and and listening in, you know, there is a void and a need for appropriate biomarkers. You're speaking my language. All right, I think we're going to get back to the next um, slide. So I think we agree. We wanted to point out that just because you have nodal disease, that's not all created equally. Um, Again, Hussein already mentioned, or Dr. Tawi already mentioned, the burden of disease that was in the trial. Um, so I think we can move on for the sake of time. So we switched it up a little bit, same patient now with more tumor in the node, so crossing that one millimeter threshold. Um, again, you know, what would you do next? Um, they are also BRAF V600E. Do you want to feel this, Jen, or do we want to bring Dr. Talby back? Well, I think this is a higher burden of disease in Correct. the node, right? And, and uh, this patient does have a B reputation, uh, but I think there's a multitude of options here. Um, you know, I think certainly observation, close follow-up, uh, but also adjuvant uh, BRAF and MEK inhibitors as well as adjuvant uh, immunotherapy. Exactly. So kind of what we summarized here, and I will say, and this is, I wish Dr. Talby was here in person so we could all interact a little more easily, but at my institution, I'm in Boston at the Mass General, we tend to be a little more targeted therapy heavy than other institutions, I would guess. I don't know, Dr. Wargo, you can tell me. Yeah, I can tell you, we we lean a little more towards IO. And I think that's probably more standard. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, it's the data isn't there yet uh, from a comparative standpoint. Um, All right, great. Um, so we just want to switch it around a little bit. This is a patient, obviously, with a higher-risk melanoma, T4B, 4.3-millimeter ulcerated melanoma uh, with 2 millimeters of, no- of disease in the node, um, also BRAF V600E. But of note, you know, the, the larger context needs to be integrated as well. This is a patient with a uh, low EF um, and, you know, with uh, a hi- cardiac history. Uh, so, again... Yeah, I think we might call on Dr. Tommy. I think so. He's who I would find if I had this patient. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you. I mean, I think, you know, again, um, every one of those cases, I look at them and immediately think, think that's a 40-minute discussion with a patient because it's going to be a discussion about what is the risk of your disease coming back, what is the, um, uh, the value of treatment or the utility of the treatment, that that includes both the risk and the benefit. Um, you know, again, you, you heard from my talk the, uh, the hazard ratio of how much you decrease the risk of recurrence and then the, the, the evidence of toxicity. And then three, the patient's protoplasm and preferences, right, which are all kind of factors in deciding adjuvant therapy. Um, so in this case, I think Dr. Uh, uh, Boland made it very clear this patient uh, will, has high-risk disease, and those are patients that you want to save with adjuvant therapy, try to cure at this stage when the tumor is still as its lowest tumor burden. 
Um, however, and, and again, the risk and the benefits, still we need to discuss with the patient uh, the, the long-term toxicities from IO versus the kind of higher incidence of targeted therapy toxicity, although it's a much shorter duration of toxicity, so they resolve once you start stop the pills. But you also, again, talking about the patient's protoplasm, so this is a lady that is otherwise having, you know, asymptomatic CHF, but her ejection fraction is on the lower side. We know that one of the very well-known side effects of BRAF and BRAF-MEC inhibitors is a depression of cardiac function, and patients actually have to undergo, either in the metastatic setting or in the adjuvant setting, they have to be evaluated with an echo and an EKG every three months while on treatment. And so you look at a situation like this, and you would say this is a patient that would be at a high risk of that toxicity, and that's quite significant, as you can imagine. Most of the time, it's re uh, reversible when it occurs, but you really don't want to treat a patient like that with a drug that has a very direct you know, side effect profile uh, with, with cardiac function effect. So with that patient, even if it was at MD Anderson, or I would hope even Ryan Sullivan at MD8 <laughs> will say, yes. this is not a BRFMAC appropriate right. patient, and if I, we have to treat IO, is it very appropriate for this patient? Yeah, just to weave in some questions from the audience, we had two great questions. One is, uh, any role for BRF-MEC followed by maintenance PD-1 in resected stage 3 disease? That's a great clinical trial. Let's do it. <laughs> yes, and then this is a great one, too. I think, um, uh, Hussein, we're going to tag you on this one, too. What's the approach in RA patients, both seropositive and seronegative in BRAF wild type, and how is that different from IBD on immune modulators, and is there a difference in uh, 2BC and 3BC? So if we could pull up Hussein again, we're putting him on the hot seat for that one. Yeah, no, thank you. Whoever asked the questions might have Googled me because I run a, a, a national trial uh, looking at the uh, safety of uh, a single agent checkpoint inhibitor at this point in patients with autoimmune disorders. It's designed right now for patients with metastatic disease, but we actually allow adjuvant treatment patients as well. And the answer is kind of from retrospective data, there is, um, you can treat those patients safely. You may expect some uh, flare of their disease. And so again, when you look at the risk benefit, the risk for toxicity is a lot higher for those patients. So you really have to really want to treat them. So most of the time, it's if they have metastatic disease. Really, in the adjuvant setting, we always look again, I just told you about those two superb ladies you have on stage, and you know, you guys cure more melanoma patients than I'll ever cure. And so surgery definitely is still curative, and there is a significant proportion of patients that will not need systemic therapy. So I always balance those things and um, you know, for a patient where um, we've done the resection, we're going to be able to follow them very closely, and we will always have those uh, drugs available if the tumor recurs. I might choose to to uh, observe those patients. So just to kind of cover the spectrum of what has already been covered in terms of the data, going back to the point that Dr. Talby made very nicely, and this is the, the data from AGCC showing stage 2C overlaid with the stage 3 groupings, showing that it does... You know, patients with high-risk non-nodal disease melanomas um, have outcomes similar to patients with lower burden disease or low-risk melanomas. Um, so if Michelle had a 4.3 ulcerated melanoma of the left far forearm but with a negative sentinel lymph node, BRAF positive, um, what are the next steps? You know, the, 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 we, we go back to those same three factors that I always take into account, right? So 
We know that melanoma is just that aggressive and it's a disease that is just designed to spread. And so even if you didn't get to the lymphatics, uh, you know, you still have a pretty high risk if you have a thick ulcerated lesion. And so um, obviously we knew that we needed this kind of study as, check, as key, uh, Keynote 716 and really good to see that uh, treatment was superior to placebo and decreases the risk of recurrence by, you know, 35% as we discussed. Um, there are no data for targeted therapy, so to be clear, the only indication right now is for the use of immunotherapy. Um, but then again, when you look at a hazard ratio of 0.65, that's great for, you know, a clinical trial to be reported and for a nice p-value, but what does that mean for a patient? You have to actually put it again in terms of absolute risk, you know, absolute risk reduction. And so if you put this patient's risk at 25%, you do the math, you can decrease that by about a third. So you have to sit with them and say, look, I can take your risk from 25 to maybe 17, 18%. I don't know if I did my arithmetics correctly, uh, but that's basically what you have to talk about, the, about with the patient and, and decide with them whether they're interested in, in being on this treatment for a year with the risk of 15% toxicity. Um, granted the toxicity, just to be clear about, you know, the vast majority of that toxicity, it, 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 as, as I tell my patients, translates into a month of steroids, right? That's like the vast majority of that 15%, probably 12%, 13% is just going to be a month of steroids and then they're fine. Uh, obviously, there's 2 to 3% that is going to be long-lasting. We have some, you know, all of the bad stories of type 1 diabetes, of my patients that have, I have a patient who developed a myasthenia kind of syndrome and took a, a couple of years to get better, you know, and now they're fine, but, but this, is, this is not an easy decision. And I think having a tool in hand is a very, very good thing. How to use it is very important. And so I think back to what Jean-Vierre was saying, we really need biomarkers in this population. And, and, you know, a lot of us are doing research in that space. I can tell you, Jeff Gershenwald and myself at MD Anderson and, and Jen Morgo and the uh, Moonshot group is really interested in that population, trying to really understand how to look at the primary and, and, and determine what to do next. But uh, yeah, definitely 40 minutes. <laughs> exactly. Many of these decisions I tell my patients, they're not algorithmic, right? They're a conversation. Um, so let's see. We said multiple options. There is an FDA-approved adjuvant option that is. I was going to softball him the question about targeted therapy, but yes, currently it's uh, PD-1 monotherapy. Um, and this was just the um, subgroup analysis from the Keynote 716. And interestingly, and a little counterintuitively, the lower burden disease seemed to perform well. But having seen this presented elsewhere, I think the data is just early and not yet mature enough, and it probably is going to uh, phase out that probably uh, both patients with those sort of lower risk, T3B and T4, A and B, um, may gain some benefit. All right. And so now it's my great honor to talk a little bit more about how we can link neoadjuvant immunotherapy to more effective surgery and improved melanoma care, a subject near and dear to my heart. And so, so what's the rationale for neoadjuvant immunotherapy or pre-surgical, and why might it be better than adjuvant treatment? And, and certainly response to therapy can be determined per each individual patient, which can help guide the need for additional adjuvant therapy. In addition to this, uh, you can potentially reduce tumor burden before surgery. You can utilize pathologic response data as a surrogate outcome marker for uh, relapse-free survival in OS. 
In addition to this, in the case of T-cell uh, checkpoint blockade, neoadjuvant therapy can actually induce a stronger and broader tumor-specific T-cell response. And uh, finally, easier baseline biomarker identification due to more homogeneous uh, patient populations. And, and so there's a lot of clinical reasons. There's also a lot of preclinical reasons. And so there have been studies published in mouse models that show that if you actually treat mice with neoadjuvant immunotherapy, it is superior to treatment with adjuvant immunotherapy, though this has not yet been proven in patients. And why might it be better to treat with neoadjuvant versus adjuvant uh, immunotherapy? Well, it, this is a, a figure from Caroline Robert, who actually had a, a beautiful write-up in Nature Medicine when there were two back-to-back -back papers that came out and, and basically showed uh, that if you have a tumor in situ and you give neoadjuvant immune checkpoint blockade, you can actually auto-immunize uh, the patient by having that tumor in situ, and, and you get complete tumor kill in the rest of the body, whereas if you resect that tumor, it makes it more difficult for the immune system to actually uh, really kind of identify the micrometastatic lesions, and it's less effective, at least in theory. Now, how about neoadjuvant targeted therapy versus neoadjuvant immunotherapy? Well, uh, the uh, phenomenal paper was published in Nature Medicine a, a little over a year ago by Alex Menzies and others, part of the International Neoadjuvant Melanoma Consortia. They did a pooled analysis, reported this data at ASCO, and basically showed that if patients are treated with neoadjuvant immunotherapy, for those patients who achieve a pathologic complete response, partial response, uh, they actually have nearly 100% long-term survival, where it's only those patients who fail to achieve any response whatsoever who do quite poorly. Now, contrast that with treatment with neoadjuvant-targeted therapy, and what we find is that patients who have a PATH-CR do fairly well, but those patients can still relapse. But if they have anything less than a complete response, they're actually at very high risk of relapse. And so, hence why we down in Texas, tend to favor use of at least neoadjuvant immune checkpoint blockade over targeted therapy, although there are some interesting advances coming up soon. Now, how about neoadjuvant uh, combined checkpoint blockade targeting CTLA-4 and PD-1? Uh, certainly in the setting of a study where Christian Blank and others looked at adjuvant versus neoadjuvant uh, ipinevo or CTLA-4 and PD-1 blockade, what they found when they looked in the peripheral T-cell repertoire is that they found in the context of patients who were treated with neoadjuvant versus adjuvant, they actually had more uh, tumor-specific you know, specific T cells uh, in the periphery. Um, and But the problem was that toxicity was high uh, with this uh, dosing regimen that they used, and 90% actually had very high toxicity, making the standard dose unfeasible for broader testing. Fast forward a couple of years in the same group, Christian Blank and others actually ran a study with Georgina Long and, and uh, ran this Opus and Neo study, which uh, actually identified neoadjuvant IPI at one milligram per kg with NEVO at three mg per kg as the optimal treatment scheme. And so what they did is they took patients uh, who were being treated with neoadjuvant and then randomized them to one of three arms. They either got two doses of IPI-3, NEVO-1, two doses of IPI-1, NEVO-3, the so-called flip dosing, or they got sequential IPI and NEVO. And, and essentially what they found is the kind of the secret sauce, if you will, was the flip dose IPI-NEVO with IPI-1, NEVO-3. And they found it maintained efficacy, but substantially reduced the toxicity. 
And so again, flip dosing appears to maximize efficacy, limit toxicity, and again, that's the IPI-1 NEVO-3, and that's that's kind of what we generally uh, turn to in patients. And interestingly, they actually had a, a paper in Nature Medicine as well, identifying biomarkers of response with TMD and interferon signatures. And really, the the follow-up so far has been pretty dramatic. Uh, here's relapse-free survival after two years of follow-up with pathologic response uh, predicting outcome. And you see if patients have a pathologic complete response, you know, they're very likely to derive long-term benefit, whereas if they fail to achieve a, a pathologic complete response, it's a pretty good surrogate that they're probably going to do poorly. And if you look at the IRAEs or the immune-related adverse events in the setting of treatment with Opus and Neo, what they found is that uh, though there were immune-related adverse events, they tended to diminish over time. And the majority of toxicities occurred within the first 12 weeks. Only four patients developed their first high-grade IRAE beyond 12 weeks. And can we limit, there's a great question on here, is can yes. we actually limit uh, surgery in patients? You know, and this is a phenomenal study, the so-called Prado study, uh, asking the question, can uh, therapeutic lymph node dissections be omitted for certain patients after neoadjuvant ipinevo? And so this is a study where they took patients with stage 3B, 3C, de novo, or recurrent melanoma, um, did resist uh, measurements, gave them two cycles of the ipi one NEVO-3, and then if they had a pathologic complete response or a near-path CR, or a, what we call an MPR, a major pathologic response with like 10, less than 10% viable tumor, those patients, they just had a resection of the index node, did not undergo completion lymph node dissection, and were just merely followed. Whereas if they had this uh, resection of this uh, index node and there was no uh, pathologic response or there was over 50% viable tumor, they went on to have a completion lymph node dissection and then went on to adjuvant therapy. Now, how about if they had a middle ground between 10 and 50% viable tumor? Then they underwent the completion lymph node dissection and had uh, just follow-up uh, CT rather than getting adjuvant therapy. And, and this, you know, like this type of a scenario happens from time to time. I actually saw a patient a few weeks ago who, uh, elderly patient, had neoadjuvant immune checkpoint blockade, had a great radiographic response. Um, actually, they called me from the holding area before surgery and said, she doesn't want an endotracheal tube. Can you do anything under local? And I'm like, the only thing we can do is like a modified Prado, right? <laughs> and, and I'll send it off for frozen, see if it's a path CR, and we could stop there. But they opted for the whole uh, therapeutic lymph node dissection for what it's worth. But we need to do more of this, right? You know, because are we doing too much surgery? Absolutely, we probably are. Now, uh, what's the take-home from Prado? So after neoadjuvant epinevo, the quality of response may drive subsequent treatment decisions. And so Prado actually confirmed the high pathologic response rate and safety observed in the previous Opus and Neo-RB, okay, that IPI-1, NEVO-3. Pathologic response rate, 71%, right? Grade three or four uh, IREs was 22% in the first 12 weeks, and therapeutic lymph node dissection was omitted in 59 patients, 60%, okay? So pretty impressive. Now, how about toxicity, though? And I think uh, all of us, as, as we've rolled out immunotherapy and immune checkpoint blockade to patients with earlier stage disease, we've certainly seen, and in the surgical setting, we've seen a lot more toxicity. And I think we all need to be aware of this. This was a paper that Beth Helmink, uh, who's now at WashU, put out on uh, considerations for the surgeon with regard to toxicity for immune checkpoint blockade. And, you know, it goes through the scientific rationale, but also shows the different uh, 
timeline for different types of toxicity, and, and I think this is a really good read for anyone who wants to use this as a resource. Now, how about next-generation combination strategies? How about LAG3? Well, LAG3 actually regulates a checkpoint pathway that limits activity of T cells, and LAG3 and PD-1 uh, receptors are overexpressed or and or co-expressed on tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes and melanoma. And so there's a real uh, rationale for using this. And uh, LAG3 itself may limit IO response in naive patients, and, and it may contribute to resistance in IO therapy-experienced patients. And so there are now ongoing studies looking at combinations of nivolumab and relatinib. Sorry, it's a harder one to say. And uh, Toby actually had a great publication just uh, out in New England Journal. Nonetheless, there was a neoadjuvant PD-1 and LAG-3 uh, trial uh, that was run by Rhoda Amari and others, and uh, she presented this data at ASCO. And it does appear to be a promising strategy. Saw a uh, pathologic complete response in 59% with a uh, non-response in only 27%. And, you know, a uh, also some near-pass CRs, and also a PAP-PR. So, so stay tuned for more, hopefully more of this data to be in print at some point in the next few months. So what are take-home messages on neoadjuvant therapy? Well, one, I think, is that use of neoadjuvant-targeted therapy as well as single or dual checkpoint blockade appears to be relatively safe. Uh, the long-term benefit, though, is superior with dual immune checkpoint blockade. Toxicity is highly dependent on the dose and schedule, and the so-called flip-dose CTLA-4 and PD-1 regimen uh, does seem to maintain efficacy and reduce the rates of, of IREs. And then, of course, next-generation strategies will focus on limiting the extent of surgical intervention, Prado style, as well as identifying biomarkers and targets of of therapeutic response and resistance. That's a key here. And also novel combinations like PD-1, leg 3. All right. And so I think it's time for our tumor board again. jean Via. Yep. All right. Moving on to the neoadjuvant setting. Um, let's see. So Robert presents to your clinic, 65-year-old gentleman presenting with a 2.5-millimeter ulcerated melanoma on the left leg, but with a palpable inguinal lymph node about two centimeters in size. We do a core biopsy as a standard to confirm that this is, in fact, metastatic melanoma. We um, stage the patient, in this case with PET-CT and a brain MRI, that shows no distant disease, but is positive for a single PET-AVID inguinal lymph node, good functional status, and is BREF V600E. Um, so what are the next steps? Do you want to bring back Dr. Talby or Jen? Do you want to take this one? Well, I'm going to turn it back to you, Jean-Vive. What would you do at Man's Greatest Hospital? Yeah, well, it depends on what clinical trials we have available. <laughs> so I think an important part of this conversation is, you know, there are no FDA-approved neoadjuvant therapies. And so for many people, and actually this is one of the questions that popped up in the thread, is what do you do if you don't have a clinical trial open? I will say, and this may be a conversation rather than me just rambling, is that um, during COVID, you know, the NCCN and other um, guideline organizations made it um, – more flexible for us to use neoadjuvant off-label um, because it was necessary given the sort of constraints on the OR. And I think that has certainly, in our institution, increased the appetite for utilization uh, before we would only use it on clinical trials. And there are now sort of cases in which we can sort of talk them <laughs> into yeah. it. Um, but I think that's an important component. What about you? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, certainly we, we aim to have clinical trials open for these patients. And that's, of course, you know, the uh, optimal uh, really, really strategy to, to enroll them onto clinical trials so that we can learn as much as possible. That being said, I think, uh, you know, for depending on the patient, sometimes we will offer off-label, and especially, again, like during COVID when we've had to cancel OR, et cetera, uh, it made it a little bit easier to justify that. But yeah. uh, even 
post, well, I hope post-COVID. <laughs> post the worst, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Post new, the new era, you know, um, I think we still are using it, but I think, but I think there was a question here on, um, let me see. I think we answered that. Oh, how to participate in multi-center neoadjuvant trials and or new trial development or otherwise incorporate neoadjuvant therapy if no trials are currently available at our center? I think that's really good. And we might tag Toby. He gets all the hard questions today. Well, so uh, so let me, I specialize in long answers. So let, <laughs> let me start with the uh, question about whether we actually treat this patient or not. I just want to remind everyone that you know, remember that patients with a palpable clinically detected lesion is already going to be 3B, more likely 3C or 3D disease. So if you look at the risk of recurrence and death, you're already talking about patients that are at the risk of death from melanoma at about 40% if you're 3C. If you're 3D, 75% of patients will die in 10 years of melanoma. So this is basically metastatic disease in disguise, right? And so you, you absolutely want to give those patients the best survival. If you do uh, resection on an adjuvant, remember you can only decrease the risk by a half, but you've seen the data that uh, Dr. Orgo just showed with these flat curves after you get a response, right? So you decrease the risk of recurrence dramatically with a response. And we know that single agent in the neoadjuvant setting is just not enough. So if you really want to Intensify therapy, that's how I think about it. This is why we use neoadjuvant for patients with palpable disease. So I absolutely, you know, the, the data is not to the point of being an FDA-approved therapy or recommended therapy yet, but, but so far it's pretty convincing. So that's why we, we uh, go the, that way. The way to get involved in clinical trials is not simple. The first question you should ask yourself is if you actually have the... Uh, you know, the, 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 the staff and the uh, abilities to run clinical trials. And if you do, please reach out to the International Neoadjuvant Melanoma Consortium. We've tried to, and Dr. Orga has been a leader in this, as well as Dr. Boland, to really put together all of the researchers um, and, and the globally that are interested in this. And we have over 250 investigators we try to bring everyone together. Before the pandemic, we were there every single major conference. We had a small gathering for the International Agile Monoma Consortium. It's been a little more difficult, but you know we're still absolutely going strong. And most of those data that you saw was actually pooled analysis with collaborations among the group. So uh, that's a resource where we're actually trying to list uh, all of the trials that are available, but we also have um, kind of a gathering of all of the uh, investigators involved. So maybe Jen, you could address how uh, we can get uh, more people involved in that effort. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that's a, a great way to do it. I will say, you know, COVID again, you know, it put a bit of a damper on that. And it's, I think, uh, how do we resource this so that we can really provide the right resources for investigators? I think, uh, you know, and again, I think it's a moving target. I think we need to come together and really work together and work with organizations like MRA, FDA, and, uh, you know, be able to drive these studies together. But real world evidence, I think, is also, you know, can we, can we adapt and use novel ways of, of designing trials that are, uh, you know, a, a bit of less of a heavy lift for institutions that might not have, you know, CPRID and other things uh, that, that are available to, you know, to some other institutions. So I think that's a, a great point. But yeah, yeah, no, I think, uh, Great way to do it. I think we need to uh, iterate a bit and grow, you know, especially in the setting of uh, what we've learned over the last two years. But good question. 
Thank you, Hussein. And then I'm going to, um, someone had mentioned uh, my use here of frozen sections. So our pathologist will not do frozen on melanoma for margins or for sentinel lymph node biopsy. Understood. Is there a protocol that your pathologists use so that they're more comfortable with the frozen section diagnosis? And so, so it's interesting. So I don't use this to guide extent of surgery at that operation per se, right? So what they did in Prado is they actually resected that index node closed, right? And then if they had, uh, you know, viable tumor, 50% or more, then they would go back and do the therapeutic lymph node dissection. Uh, you can, what's interesting with these when you treat patients with either neoadjuvant checkpoint blockade especially, or sometimes even targeted therapies, you'll get fibrosis. And so if you see absolutely no viable tumor and a lot of fibrosis, it's reassuring and you're very likely to have had a past CR, but of course you haven't sampled the whole node. So I usually bivalve it, send a little piece off for frozen. If they see you know, marked fibrosis and no viable tumor, I feel better about it. But again, I still do the whole therapeutic lymph node dissection. So my pathologists don't necessarily love me for doing that, but you know, it's, it's kind of nice to get that information, but you have still have to wait for the final pathology. So I don't think we have the, the magic answer just yet. I will say that our pathologists through the International Neoadjuvant Melanoma Consortia actually put together a white paper on how to process these samples and how to read out a path CR. So that is a good read. I think that was in, was that in Annals of Oncology, right? Yeah, by Michael Tetzloff and others. So yeah, and, and Richard Scolier. So that's a good uh, good reference for any of the, the uh, surgeons out there to bring to the attention of their pathologists and to know on your own too. So okay, great. I All think right, we we'll pull move up the on slides. To the yep. Yeah, we pull up the slides. So changing the scenario only mildly, BRF wild type. Um, I think again, I don't think we need to get into the weeds here. Um, but uh, any commentary on um, you know in the BRF positive patient, we talked a lot about IO, which I think is the preferred uh, regimen. I hear it's not even really an option. Um, so yeah. I think that's more straightforward. We already talked about flip-dose-ipinevo and how that uh, um, strategy has uh, proved to be superior and the, and the really importance of the pathologic response in the, in the node. So uh, same gentleman uh, receives new adjuvant flip-dose-ipinevo. Um, however, in the midst of that has grade two hypophysitis. So one of the endocrinopathies associated with um, yeah, ipinevo as a potential uh, therapy. Um, so, you know, we've talked a little bit about the manage of IRAEs. Um, we would manage them, but those patients would still go on to surgery. Um, and generally, they, they tolerate it just fine. So here we go. Same gentleman, core biopsy, VRF wild type. He got the neoadjuvant. Um, do we base anything on the depth of the response in the, the surgical specimen? So this is the question of sort of the... the yeah, this is a great... Opposite Yeah. Um, I guess one thing that Jen has pointed out, though, is that really opposite is a clinical trial to address this question specifically, and very few of us it, resect the index node only. Right, for Prado. Yeah, Prado <laughs> it, it, a la Prado style. So I think while we're all very interested in minimizing surgery, um, most of the time in the real world, you're going to do a completion lymphadenectomy. But um, I think it's an opportunity for us as surgeons in the States. These, uh, the Prado study was done in the, in the Netherlands and in Australia. Yep. You know, so I think there is an opportunity in the States to really replicate this and learn from this. Absolutely. And sort of Jen alluded to this before, and I'll sort of um, you know, reaffirm, it's changing the way we think about patients with nodal disease, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, I, and I tell patients, if we're going to deviate from NCCN-based guidelines, they know that, that we are deviating from NCCN-based guidelines, but it makes me a little more comfortable when we do that um, in certain settings, either patient preference or, or whatever. And I've had a few of those. 
Um, so we mentioned that we would, you know, therapeutic lymph node dissection. However, um, we talked a little bit about Prado, but functionally, unless it was set up as a clinical trial, that's not the way we do the surgeries in terms of the sequencing. So this is one I think we all think yeah. a lot about. This is a gentleman with a 2.5 millimeter ulcerated melanoma, but with a very large palpable node, uh, 10 centimeter, you know, bulky inguinal disease with several other nodes, um, all demonstrating, you know, three or four nodes of uh, pet avidity, no pelvic adenopathy. So resectable, but bulky disease. Um, good functional status, BRAF V600E. Um, I think this is a patient that we would feel much more strongly about uh, treating in the neoadjuvant setting. And so I guess I'll throw this to you, Dr. Wargo. Uh, targeted therapy because it's bulky or immunotherapy? Yeah, and I, I'll tell you, I'm a fan of targeted therapy too. I love I love immunotherapy, and I, I grew up on targeted therapy, you know, so I, I love targeted therapy, too. And if you asked me this a couple of months ago, I would have said, oh, gosh, cytoreduced with some targeted therapy, but then, you know, come on the back end with immunotherapy. But but maybe we should talk to uh, Toby. Yep. Yeah, that's, uh, again, thank you for reserving the tough questions for me. I appreciate it. Um, so, I mean, this is a situation where you have to think about the long-term outcome, right? And, and actually, I think about having a BRAF mutation as just giving me one more option. So if I went with targeted therapy in adjuvant, I can always switch to immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting. Again, this is not based on a clinical trial, and, and that's the next trial we probably should be doing. Uh, which is in those patients, if you don't get the right response that you're looking for, you can switch to the other form of therapy. But as you just saw from the um, kind of the pooled analysis, the most predictable long-term outcome you get with, is with immunotherapy. And the size of the tumor didn't really necessarily matter. Um, the only concern is obviously when you treat with immunotherapy, the response is not as predictable. Patients may not have shrinkage of tumors. So if you as a surgeon are looking at this and saying, because of that size, I may not be able to operate, as, as, as Brent Sondak called it, the nearly unresectable patient, um, then you may be getting a much more clear uh, and, and quick response from targeted therapies, so that may help your, your surgical approach. And that would be the reason to do it. Immunotherapy, as you know, either works or it doesn't, but it's about, you know, uh, some, some patients in which it doesn't, the tumor can actually expand in size. Even some patients in which it does, the tumor may expand in size with the kind of pseudo-progression pattern that, you know, Jen has experienced uh, multiple times with some of our common patients. So I think that's a question that's really, as a medical oncologist, I will absolutely need a tumor board and a surgeon that's honest about what they can or cannot do and what their goals for the patient are. And Hussein, could you uh, comment on DreamSeq and some of the other data that's been presented regarding uh, use of targeted then immuno versus immuno then targeted. Yeah, so that's in the metastatic setting. And as you know, all of the current uh, approvals for targeted therapy or immunotherapy in the metastatic setting are all in the first line. So all of them are phase three trials and previously untreated patients. So speaking of 40 minute discussions, every time I have a BRF mutated <laughs> patients with metastatic disease, I had to sit down and again say, well, you could do targeted therapy. The survival is good. The PFS is good. But then the durable responses are the ones described with immunotherapy. So as medical oncologists, we generally were veering towards immunotherapy, but that was based on, you know, gut feeling and kind of interpretation of the data until Mike Atkins took, you know, almost, I don't know, close to 10 years to run this trial. But the whole point was to actually randomize patients up front, BRAF mutated, untreated melanoma, go to ipinevo versus uh, the brafenoptromethanib and then switch at progression. 
And finally, we got the data uh, back. And I, I was just talking to Mike today, actually, at lunch. And I told him the best thing about that study is the, the answer was very clear. There was a 20% difference in survival at two years and overall survival, a 20% difference in, um, uh, in favor of immunotherapy first with ipilimumab and nivolumab. So uh, it's a pretty clear-cut answer right now. And so in the metastatic setting, we, we, uh, we can now refer to that when we talk to our patients and maybe shave off another 15 minutes of discussion. Uh, but, but I, in, uh, you know, how to apply that to the neoadjuvant setting is a little harder just because, obviously, it's a different population. It's a different setting. Uh, but kind of, you know, highlights the fact that immunotherapy is just really powerful. Great, thank you. Thank you. And I think we have a slide. Can we get the slides back from DreamSeek? Did you, um, uh, so we said that both options are oh, DreamSeek. Um, and you can see here the data that was just referenced. So um, Ipinevo followed by uh, DabTram versus uh, DNT first. Um, and so I think that that has been very, very helpful. Again, the question remains as to how it applies in the neoadjuvant setting. And I will just say, I promise that I'm not an anecdotal kind of care person, but I think that the, at least here, my appetite for immunotherapy and getting good tumor shrinkage has increased as we've optimized the dosing regimens. Mm -hmm. And so we do in some of these, I had a patient very similar to this recently who had a tremendous uh, response to new immunotherapy in terms of tumor shrinkage, mm -hmm. very locally advanced tumor. So um, anyway, my appetite for that is, is much higher now. Um, and Jen, you want to just comment as, as the neoadjuvant expert, uh, just yeah, yeah. Where, so we're, we're where, where are we going from here? So I think intralesional, I think, you know, and especially for cold tumors or colder tumors like mucosal and things like that, uh, you know, along with other, other intralesional therapies, BRF, MEC, um, triplets, uh, certainly other checkpoint inhibitors beyond pembrolizumab monotherapy, Nevo, Ipinevo, flipped and non-flipped dosing, and then lag three, and there's there's more coming down the pike. So I think a lot of uh, optimism and a lot of opportunity in the future. Awesome. I think there's a couple minutes. Oh, let me go back. Yeah, we probably have you know one or two minutes for questions. I will have to peel off myself shortly. But, yeah. Uh, but and I think we got through a lot of these. Yeah, I think uh, we we checked off a lot of boxes here. Um, one was, what are most effective immunohistomarker in melanoma for rapid progression of you? Yeah. I uh, wish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, it's certainly not necessarily the, uh, the imaging because I think you can have these nodal immune flares, especially in the setting of treatment with, uh, with IO. So, uh, yeah, we still need better markers for that. Yeah. Uh, CD8 PET, I think, is, is, yeah, we, we've been doing Granzyme labeled PET as well. <laughs> okay. yeah. Um, you know, but I think there's still, so there's, I think, non-invasive imaging, um, and, you know, biomarkers. I think these uh, people have pointed out where the growth areas are, but we're yeah. just not there yet. Yeah, exactly. So TBD. Exactly. So if anyone has any questions, uh, over the next minute or two, we'll take it. But if not, it was, it's been a great evening. It's been a pleasure spending time with you live here in the room and also in virtual space. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it really is great to be back in person. Thank you. Thank you all. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash WUW860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Merck & Company, Incorporated.